0: Why, Indigenous words and ideas, with Arsia Tekun. welcome. Thanks for, for being willing to share. Seini, and I'll go ahead and introduce <laughs> a little bit of yourself and, and some of the things that you get up to.
1: Cool. So Siatofa, my name is Seini Faleakadamatpial. I'm a I call myself a songwoman orator. But I guess professionally, you know, if I was to put it in three words, I'd say I'm an artist, a presenter and an educator. So I do lots of different things. I'm Australian born. I was born here in um, Sydney, Australia, what's known as Sydney, Australia. And they're the unceded lands of the Gadigal people from Eora Nation.
0: I think of when we when I first kind of became aware uh, of you and and kind of the connections that we were making, like I I know that you have a background also like in poetry and You also have this uh, hip-hop alias and a performance background. Would you mind maybe sharing a little bit of of some of that work that you've done as well?
1: Sure. So my performance name is Sister Native. Sister Native was a name that I adopted for two reasons. When I was at university in the late 90s, they asked me to create my own Hotmail account because email was kind of new in universities. And at that same time, I was I was really struggling to find things to research that really reflected me. And so what I do is I'd go to the library, the university library, which was kind of new to me and also like my hiding place (laughs) at uni. And I just I'd walk in past the bit that goes beep beep if you take books out the wrong way. Yeah. And I would literally just say, library, what do you have to give to me? And so and then I just find my way to a book and a book that I found this way um, in my early years was a book by Honani K. Trask called From a Native Daughter. And that's when I started using the word native to describe myself. And um, she works a lot with the Hawaiian sovereignty movement, Kanaka Maoli. And so mixing that with like my community radio background and a lot of the different mentors that I had at the time in the 80s and the 90s in Sydney, I'm from a radio station called Radio Skid Row, 88.9 FM. A lot of those women call themselves sister you know, sister this, sister sister that. And so I thought, oh, okay, you know, I'll be sister and I'll be native. So my email address was sisternative at hotmail.com. Um, and that also became my performance persona. So since that time, I've been writing from that perspective as a rapper, as a poet, as a lyricist, and also somebody who performs world music, which is what you get called, when You look like me in a space like Australia and you sing some songs.
2: Who <laughs> <laughs> let the cat out the hat? A rat to
1: tat, tat, bloop, went. to the thermostat, my tropical extract, never lack. There'll be no
2: back, check, my jiggle ready for combat, dressed in my fatigues. Woman wobble like a warm bat, out back, and we out at the side. Want to bring wonder with my thunder flies. Come
1: on, take an island trip. My Polynesian hips do dip so you can get a better grip. Often think exotic.
0: What's your relationship to performance and, and what does it kind of reveal and, and what can you do with it?
1: Ah, so songs. So Australia itself has a, a culture that's built on a knowledge system called songlines. So being born here and then also living here, that's undoubtedly just the space that as a Tongan person I resonate in. So that's the context from Tonga, which is where my roots are. Like essentially, my you know my two sets of grandparents. I come from two houses. One is in Kolomotu'a called Up for o, and the other is Hoko, that's in Nuku which is in Hihifo in Tongatapu. So I have bloodlines that spread out from these two households. And I would say that the song wise, my earliest memories of touching song and sound and having the deepest meaning. To it is from Nuknuku, from my house that I hoko. So the soundscape of living there in my village, uh, which is my mother's village, is what informs pretty much everything. Everything I do with sound, whether it's radio, being a broadcaster, um, since I was really little, I come from people who make song, who write, and within my ancestry, most of what I think is. Writing or text or song or even oratory that has shaped the world that we live in right now as Tongans has been in some way, some way, shape or form affected by an ancestor of mine. And for me, it's about extending my ancestors' songlines inside the context, living in a country called Australia, plugging my songlines into the songlines network that that has existed here for millennia. So yeah, to me, it's the meaning of these two technologies. And then um, I'm like a switch on that
0: circuit. I'm wondering if you mind sharing a little bit of uh, that journey, like different Indigenous groups of people finding a relation with each other or, because or, even like song lines, like that's something that I never would have thought of until I heard you start referring to it that way. And I was like, oh, wow, like that. I'd always associated with Blackfellas, right? And yeah. then I was like, oh, it works so well to kind of unpack thinking about, like you mentioned, Hohoko, these genealogical excavations of sound, and what has been like your relationship in in kind of using that and engaging with local Indigenous folks? Because I think that's something that I'm always interested in. Because the world is what it is now, we have so many people all over the place, and then oftentimes we overlook these, these rich potential relationships that could be or that, you know, are starting to kind of strengthen in different places.
1: Yeah, totally. Songlines is these days like a concept, especially now there's a lot of indigenous media in Australia, that is something that's kind of on in, in the mainstream canon, I would say. For me though, when I entered that realm specifically, like consciously and specifically, which was when I was at university and living in a country town. So I studied regionally on the lands of the Banjalang people. And suddenly I was not in a city, I was in a town where the Indigenous space was a lot more pronounced. And then I decided to join the Indigenous College while I was at university. My first year, I became disillusioned with what I was learning from media studies. And then I was welcomed by an elder, actually the last initiated man of Bunjalang heritage, who was also one of our lecturers and teachers And when I was doing Indigenous studies, it was just at this very particular moment of time, which no longer exists in terms of an Indigenous college or an Indigenous school of thought. So it was when things were kind of bubbling here in Australia. And it was a very quiet movement. It was before Sorry Day existed. And so there was like 95, 1995. So my My consciousness as somebody who is consciously participating in Australia as an Indigenous person from somewhere else is very much informed by what I learned at Indigenous college. You know, our our school was called Ganguljindaba, which is a local totem space, but I was doing units like Indigenous spiritual well-being, international Indigenous issues, and I had an Arapaho Arapaho lecturer at that time. Um, Dr. Stephen Gray morning, and just learning from different types of Indigenous people about how they come to be in the present moment really informed who I was at the time. So Sister Native really came into being and found her voice in that way. When it comes to song and song lines, from that perspective, I ended up doing a lot of work, like I would say I'm coming up on 19 years now, doing very direct work with Indigenous communities here and that's primarily in creating songs but I've also most of my career as a musician has been working in Indigenous bands like legendary bands or touring with them and that, and that would be true for you know quite some Tongan singers from from Australia you know like doing backing vocals and that type of thing but I was a little bit different because I worked with bands like Coloured Stone, Uncle Bunalari at a particular time where a lot of the legends were were at the end of their prime. So they for 30 years they'd created this kind of uh, what I call the Indigenous music circuit here. And it's amazing to be one of the people that is considered sister on that circuit. But all of those things influence my understanding of who I am when I sing, who I am when I perform, how I access my own sovereign voice inside, the mix of all of that. And when I say that, I also mean how I stay true to myself in the mix of even all of the political content in the songs, you know, that are considered kind of like, you know, Aboriginal anthems. So actually being somebody who has lived inside modern Aboriginal anthems that produce things like the black, the Australian Black Power Movement or the Aboriginal flag as it's known now, like being part of the songs that made those things and actually travelling that along a track that's, that's nationwide, gave me a, a substantial foundation in what I think songlines are, as well as working across probably about 13 different Aboriginal languages, which also means kind of talking to, you know, very amazing and nerdy linguists and that type of thing around campfires in many different locations across the continent. So it's, yeah, like for me, I broke a lot of my own rules And I was very aware in my twenties when I was sleeping on swags in the middle of, you know, just outside of Catherine next to a group of men and being the only female and allowing myself to do that. I often, I literally would pray all the time, you know, but when I say pray, I pray in like that indigenous way where like (laughs) I throw myself to the closest body of water and then usually calling my grandmothers to come to me in those moments. And so I think, being the descendant of direct descendant of Celestial Navigators from our region, my last name means Battle with the Waves and it's because that's that was our role. I believe that that's me tapping into my, my own personal song lines because I'm remote from my people and remote from my Indigenous place in the world. And so now the songs or the lyrics or the things that I create, I have a very... I guess um, I've developed a process of deep consciousness around what that is. And also that you can do it anytime, any any place. And so, yeah, I have a friend called Karen Rookie, She's a Maori curator. And she she says that she's, she found her indigeneity suckling on the bosom of Australian Aboriginal people and culture and their struggle as well. I would say that I'm somewhat similar. Although the difference is, is that my bloodlines and my belonging to my grandparents, especially in my early life, primarily in Tongatapu is my anchor. So yeah, like the songs, you know, they're there. And when I say I'm a switch on that circuit, it's quite literally that, like you just, I'm the version of that in this moment. So in that way, everything I make, whether it's, uh, I give myself to operate in whatever languages are available to me at that moment. And it's because I really do know like I'm the current expression of my ancestors and I have no apology about any of that ever
2: One, two, three. One, two, three.
1: my mind always goes to what I do because that's kind of the job like the job of who I'm I feel I'm born to be is and what are you gonna do now you know like what are you gonna give more than anything? because I feel like a lot of the time, the conversation with Tongans is that we're looking at some kind of past greatness. My thing is usually about what's my contribution. And I think about my grandfather, Lupeti, his son Tommy wrote Ulu Ulu for our, our village. I guess you would call it in Australian terms, you call it, that's our dreaming site. So then that determines how then we relate to our site, our specific indigenous site in the world. And then how you would then dance to that is important. When my cousin, when it was his 21st birthday, I was at home at Tata Hokor and I composed something that is our personal family story of the moment when it's the reason why our home is called Tata Hokor, the, the battle that never was. And it was during that time of the creation of modern kingdom of Tonga and also the insertion of Christianity into our, uh, what was our first drafted constitution. And, of course, when things like that happen, there are local things, also, occurrences that happen. And so my family have a direct link to a story from that time. And so I wrote a song that, you know, I got some of my second cousins to sing along with me to record on cassette at the time. So that would have been probably in the 80s, maybe early nineties. Yeah. Something like that. Where like I wrote the thing, we recorded it in three part harmony. Cause that's how I imagine always in harmony and recorded that for my cousin. But that song has traveled a lot. Um, I've recorded it with an indigenous trio that I was in. It's an award winning trio called stick Gyms, And those two women are doing incredible indigenous work as well. But that was from like yeah I guess early 2000s I was in that band like 2002 to 2004 say and so I just feel like song lines also have a track which is why they're called song lines because and they have tracks that are inside the moment but they're also tracks that extend on into the future and and unwind into the past.
2: Oh trees there's a lonely winds, winds blow, blow blood stainless Fuku hele la ota punga tatau in hio we bear your soul, forever glow green and green, live to see your destiny. Your destiny. Hana to grow, just what you see, no what you seen Old oh, tree, oh, tree. stands so lonely, winds blow, blow tear. Stain
0: leaves you're you're stepping into your responsibilities of maintaining this genealogical knowledge but you're also adding the new stories that are part of what will be for the next one would you mind maybe sharing a little bit about that and how you how you see your role in that and be being able to retrace uh, the, the journey, right? But at the same time, adding these new layers and new these new lines.
1: To me, it's the difference between a bowl and a bowl with holes in it. And for me, there has never really been a choice about being somebody who holds things or somebody who lets things go, you know, or doesn't hold things to be that or not to be that. And people often think that the role of being a holder or a keeper is, you know, just a cup of that thing that it's because you come from important people. But I would say that in inside my bloodlines, I come from very important people and also lots of people who are not considered important. And because I hold that to be true, you know, I'm not just the person who says to do things. I'm also the person who does things. And for me that's kind of the way that I approach life like I'm the boss and I'm also the workhorse you know like I mean that's just an ordinary reality but in in Tonga these are highly stratified things there's many roles and I give myself license to be all those things whether it's the big boss or the bottom of the heap and the truth of Tongan existence to me from my perspective is that we are all of those things and so as a creative person I'm a junkie when it comes to knowledge and learning, like a, like a junkie. I'm just really, I'm addicted to it. So I just happen to also be from people who have knowledge. And so that you have the knowledge keepers plus a sponge. You're just going to be like, for me, it's just everywhere. Being somebody who considers themselves to be a cup, like I'm a cup of this thing. So yeah, they got to pour that stuff into me. That's good. I also have the obligation to think, what am I going to do next with this? That doesn't always necessarily come from being somebody from the lofty heights. It's also coming from people who are the doers and the people who make things um, and the people who are the closest to the land and the closest to the fire. And also the most expendable people that get sent, sent out, go and do that. You know? And I feel like my personal persona has been somebody who's embodied all of those different things. And so as a performer, and somebody who, and as an educator, I guess, even in some instances, whether I'm having a quiet moment with myself or a very noisy moment with many people, the job is the same and it's across that entire spectrum and range. And for me, it's just about being really good at the range, getting really good at the spectrum, which is just, I mean, that's life's work. When it comes to the songs in particular, I marvel at the beautiful thing about creating a spark and then having a song or something that's written because I'm, I'm somebody who can talk in the moment or write in the moment, but mostly I prefer to sit and write text. I find that when you're somebody who does that, it's really beautiful also to be somebody who can let that go and let it live its own life. And that as a creative spark is something that's quite beautiful to, to witness. And I think that these days, what I'm witnessing in and amongst, you know, some of, I guess, maybe it's my family members or people I know, is that we've adopted a lot of these ways that are about kind of like monument building, even in the self, my identity must be a monument. <laughs> like, I just find it hilarious. Just, you know, you know, like my specific individual identity must I don't know, do great things. And greatness is a wonderful thing, but it also doesn't let the song sing itself. I, I think the one of the most beautiful things about coming from where we come from is the non-attachment to being monolithic, to being individualistic, to being, I don't know, some kind of erected dynasty forevermore. That's that's something that I think pervades everything that I do and I make. But to me, that's, that's how I, that's my expression of being... true Tongan self and Tongan itself is a concept anyway which is the thing that I'm in the later part of my life I'm probably starting to undo this concept the more I learn the more connectedness I learn so these concepts of nationhood statehood they're not really apparent what's more important is what are we doing now you know not just who have we been in the past 200 years what conflicts happened 500 years ago who was on top of who 1000 years ago why did those people come to our shores these kinds of things like I I understand that that's deeply meaningful to a lot of people that's just not what my purpose in this life is at the moment and probably not many other lives so uh, to me the songs are an attachment to that but what's something that I've I think it really speaks clearly to me as a person. I've got this friend who's a drummer and he's from Indonesia and his family, what they do is gamelan music, you know, so he's a drummer, but percussionist is what you call him. And he came across to Sydney to study music, you know, which is something that my mum did as well. She came to Sydney and studied music. He likes to wear a T-shirt that his his thing is he likes to wear a Superman T-shirt so he's a little Indonesian guy who, like, wears his Superman T-shirt and, like, is a beast on the drums. You know, he's a little guy like carves it up. He's just so funny but a very dedicated person. And when his father was passing, he was telling me this thing about, you know, he sat with his dad before he came to Australia and said, you know, like, like tell me what I'm supposed to do, you know, what, you know, something that I can keep with me always or, you know, some type of guiding principle. And his dad said, you know, you already know everything because, you know, we've brought you up in this musical tradition, I guess. But he said the thing to remember, the only thing I want you to remember now that you're going to learn these new forms of things like classical drumming and all of this kind of thing, drum kits. And he he totally has mastered all those things coming from this traditional practice. But his fa- his father had said to him that the music does not have to be good. The music has to be alive. And I think that this, to me, that's pretty much a principle that I live by as well I'm not caught in the dichotomy of good and bad these dualisms and most people who work with music and sound also are not because the form itself lends itself to not light and dark not just highs and lows there's harmony and disharmony there's dissonance and then there's you know non-dissonance whatever the correct word is and and that's actually the realm that we work in when we make sound that there isn't the good sound the bad sound there's things that are more harmonious and less but actually we toy with the tension and the beautiful thing I think about music being this universal language and a realm that we work in is that it's one of the places where difference is embraced not always on an industry level I would say but definitely in the form itself we don't mind you know we don't mind oh you're going to use your voice like that deep and incredible and I'm lucky enough to have known and worked with people who are from some very long-standing musical traditions. Like I've worked with griot and young griot as well, who are people who's, who tell you stories of like one of my friends that I've worked with in the outback. He's from a family of griot who they play the kora, like the, the kora, sorry, the African harp. And he's literally the men in his line, that's their instrument in the world. So if you've ever seen an African harp, that's his stuff and he plays an african harp with two necks so it's one gourd with two necks if you can imagine like a big a big bowl with you know two big sticks out of it and that just gives it so many more note options but of course when you change an instrument like that all the playing has to change like everything has to change and we belong to to a species who who sometimes resist all the changes but also thrive in the transformation and he told me that you know it was his grandfather who did that and I was like how did that happen like how do these traditions just like change you know number one somebody's the boss of it and they change it so his dad is the dude to do it and I'm like does that mean that you like you could do that and he's like yeah pretty much he said that his grandfather had a dream woke up and that single neck instrument was no more it's now two that's it boom change and, and for me, you know, when we are in our sovereign power as creative beings, and we be all of our bloodlines in that moment, you can do these things. So it's really important for me not to kind of predetermine um, our own self-determination. That's really important. Um, and to keep the creative spark alive. I also practiced kahuna bodywork, which is a Polynesian system of healing, hand based energy healing. And I learned that only because I was away from my family and I needed to resonate with more of our one and stuff. So, two things happened. I learned kahuna bodywork while I was at uni. Also, I had to make money because they weren't hiring university students in that country town at the time. And also, um, I joined, like, I started singing songs with these Māori lesbians who'd moved to the North Coast and became part of this what i now recognize i didn't know at the time but what i now recognize as a very close knit queer community of ex new zealanders who came to australia to be themselves i didn't know i was just a kid from a brown kid from sydney who decided to learn regionally you know but i walked into this solid community of women you know trans women and they're older like they're like 10 sometimes 12 years older than me with lots of life experience. So for me, like just being the voice and somebody who was from a hip hop culture and could write rap and had this pressure from the city to just write, write, write stuff. Like I just started writing all our songs because that's what I knew how to do. But I was fueled, like my flames are fueled by these groups of people that I identify with as well as practice, like my hands learn to practice. And that was from another Maori woman also an ex-New Zealander, Maori slash German, um, was my first Kohona teacher. And so it was kind of an interesting time for me starting uni because I guess taking myself away from my home in Sydney, and it was my first chosen home in Bundjalung country. Like I went to Southern Cross University and it was a brand new university at the time as well. So I was doing all these new, weird and wonderful things like having an indigenous college having units like race and racism spiritual well-being you know indigenous spiritual well-being indigenous environmental management international indigenous issues they had the first um, Australian naturopathy course at university you know like so there was a lot of this kind of bubbling in that area at the time and it's just it's Country countries like where Byron Bay is if people internationally they know that place yeah but it is the home of the Bundjalung people it's northern rivers in Australia and for me it's this thing of I feel that Uh, My ancestry's, you know, done me the good deed of being able to kind of connect me all the time with community and people professionally who help me allow myself to do that more and more, including being friends with you.
0: tumbleweed and being able to moving where the wind blows, instead of going against it. And and I think about even kind of my own trajectory of like, I had to leave where I was from at some point to end up in a place, I guess, consciously, there was a time that I, I think about even in my past that had I remained isolated, that wouldn't have happened. Right. And, and so thinking about, you know, instead of resisting that constant flow and movement, that exists in, in a living world and even when you talk about um identity and, and even deconstructing the nation and thinking wow i mean this that was invented at some point in time right and so how do you see like the way that you're able to see these things and 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 constantly move with this flow the role of uh and and maybe like what does that mean to you and how do you see it because the fonua is living and changing and so Dasi yeah, is part of it, but it's a it's a small moment in this this longer genealogy. Anyways, I'll let you um, kind of explain. But that's just kind of what's going through my mind at the moment as you've just shared.
1: Yeah, I guess in in say my personal experience is that something that I've come up with myself in terms of navigating anything forwards in and amongst my own people is yeah what fa'afenua is and what whakasyasi is. And for me, I went to many feasts in my village uh, as ordinary practice. And that's not everybody's experience, but that was the experience that I had with my grandparents. And from that experience, I was always in the seat of the whakasyasi which is why I was at those feasts at all. And that seat, that used to be ahead uh, before the whakasyasi seat. But now who I am these days, now that like the generation before me, so the generation after my grandparents, there are lots of people who are important people in the church from my different lineages. And I guess for me, it's about the spatial reality of when you sit somewhere, then you know where other people sit. And for me, I have my own personal experience from a time, but time itself also moves. So what I've seen with the moving of time and the moving of people is that now the fakfunua seat and the Whakasiasi seat in the feasting moment are now directly opposite to each other. And that's international. So different feasts I've sat at. I'm still in the fakfunua seat often when it comes to my own Ganga, but there's also the person sitting opposite, being that Faksiasi person. Now these days, especially inside my lineages, one person would be both Whakfunua and fa'asiasi, And this is kind of like the interesting thing, given what our Hohoko tells us about who we, what our position was at different t- periods of time. Like, for example, when modern Tonga was created and church and state became something that is this new concept, the reasons why that happened and also why Christianity was able to be embedded inside the first Tongan constitution and also the values of that timeframe being about whaka That quite often times in these moments of first contact or developing into the new way, for indigenous people whaka often is the thing that we're trying to negotiate, the land. I would say at this particular point in our modern world, especially with climate change being the reality, that I still am whakafunua. Whakasiasi, the seat itself, was created at that modern Tonga time, but my relationship or even my spiritual relationship was not created at that time. And for me, that's kind of like what my positioning is. Not to say that that's not fluid and that um, I don't have a very extensive Christian upbringing, but I would say that's kind of true for any Tongan, right? (laughs) these days um and also changing you know i know there's a mosque and a and there's lots of other things going on as well in tongan that spiritual realm so maybe even the word siasi would change um, i would imagine that if we're say for example in a tongan muslim village or even a tongan muslim household you know or um a tongan um there's what's that a bahai household that perhaps if they don't use the word siasi at the moment that's what is used but there will be a time quite possibly, especially with diaspora, where that the word itself, or the language itself must change. And so I'm really interested in those types of things or the meeting places of that or how, how different people dis- associate and disassociate. For me, I'm a deeply spiritual person. I, I think that being an Indigenous person in itself predetermines that. And of course, as I said before, like not to be predetermined about our self-determination, to also be self-determined in more importantly, what you do now, because those things, once they've already happened, they've happened. You know, I'm a little bit pragmatic like that, but I also think that that's kind of like an indigenous mindset as well. Well, that's the past. That's what we always say. Well, <laughs> you know, that's the past. What are we going to do now? You know, who are we this moment? Jeez, you know, because really, that's all we—that's all you've got. But more importantly, for me, I like to create or choose or make decisions and take actions based on things that I know resonate well with my ancestors. Fuck it up. for my ancestors right now is to look after my health actually you know not to go out there and be everything that everyone needs me to be I think we're always navigating the value systems of everyone we're connected to and that's deep and can be rough seas you know when you're connected to so many all the time and I think that you know then self-care becomes radical you know like oh, I'm going to go away to university. Radical, you know, I'm going to, like I've had those specific conversations with some of my aunties to say, you know, when is going to be the right time to let your daughter do these things? I think, and what my experience was, if you let them go to the school and then do the campus thing, it's box tick. You can still go to church and tell everybody, everything's fine. That's what my daughter is doing because she's doing school, you know, but, oh, my gosh, she's out of the house. You know, <laughs> You're like, what is she eating? And it's like, yeah, just kind of, like, be on her for that. But it doesn't have to be, well, we don't do that or we don't go there or, you know. In my family, that stuff is old school anyway. Like, that's many generations ago. But that's why I can talk about it now. Like, what's the fear really? It's just that she, she might do something that you didn't know or someone you know hasn't experienced but that's fine if you want her to turn out exactly like you truth is the world moves and time changes which is why we often have these people who have to do something different to cope with not now later next that's what we got to do and so yeah for me it's that that thing of i navigate that because that's something from my own personal experience yeah i feel like from a lot of people who lived in Tonga and weren't born in Australia and, you know, had the same experience as me. They often say that that myself and my siblings are lucky because we got to experience at a particular time, like in the late 70s and early 80s, like almost like a golden moment of Tonga, you know, and the changes that were yet to come. I would say that's true, but I also think that that's also because that's what my family made it and that's what I made it, you know, because a lot of those people are no longer here. And that just fortifies exactly what now I have to do and now what I've push you know my siblings and perhaps my cousins and my community a little bit too far to do but you know there's much to be done because we're we're sailing new seas it's just how it is but I really feel that we are not the first people to do it something that I learned a lot you know during COVID like just having all this kind of like Pacific stuff like hit online was that it really contextualized things for me in terms of when you observe yourself as being kind of like new wayfinders or other people observe you as being these types of people that we all are actually. But I feel that just in the basic learning of like the settlement, like, you know, what's understood as being the settlement of Polynesia is that being Tongan as well as having blood ties to a lot of the neighbouring islands as well, and cultural ties, like very strong, massive political cultural ties. The more I find out, the more I realise, oh, my gosh, like these are very definite cultural influences and in fact have influenced how we make decisions, how we choose a family leader, how we, whether or not we allow meritocracy and why it's possible in this lineage and not that lineage, you know. Like, why can't I have this conversation over here with these people? It's like, oh, because they didn't do that meritocracy thing. That stuff came from Samoa. Oh, okay. Well, what about, you know, well, like, why are they like this? And it's like, oh, because there was all that Fijian influence, like how many hundreds of years ago. And it's actually living and breathing in the people that I know today. It's an inner conversation. It's on messenger. And it's, so this concept of, you know, this kind of Tongan nationalism and that there's a right and wrong, I will never subscribe to that. It's never been true. Like, Never ever, ever being true. Not one time. We just happened to have a moment in history where it made more sense for us to be a nation. In that moment, that's now seven, eight generations ago. You know, and everyone from that space and time were living and breathing in that space. So those were decisions that were made there and then. It's wonderful that there's a flag in all of these things. You know, and I'm, I'm in no way assert that you know, I determined those things, but in our daily activities and in the artworks that we make and in the connections that we make, I personally don't close off, but that's because I'm the descendant of my ancestors. None of them did like not, not one person in my bloodline before me did that. Every single generation, you know, going back, everybody moved somewhere. And even on a basic level of Well, they got married and then they moved from that village to that village. That actually means extreme change for an individual because you're no longer with your own people, you're with those people. And you now have to speak their language. I think that we're letting go a lot of our adaptability, like the cultural adaptabilities. We come from a transformative space. We had to transform to get to that space in the first place. We then had to transform to stay. And now that we're moving out, we also need to transform again. And I guess I'm an artist in that in that regard, like a creative, um, and also a deeply spiritual person who determines to live just in the transformative. But to me, that's the nature of being a woman and person, a woman, like women in particular. I'm like our physiology is created so that we understand transformation, you know, at the highest stakes of humanity. So I'm like being woman pacific person there's just no you know indigenous i'm like i am the master of transformation what you know and all my sisters too like you know and then that's how i approach the world and that doesn't mean that we can't then talk across to those who are not that you know but that's kind of like what my center is and so the way that fakfonua feeds into that as i guess you know like a lived philosophy or I read in text when I was reading Hanani, Hanani K. Trask, which just gave me licence to have to give voice to that inside an academic field or perhaps even a legal field or a political field. But it's the same message as what all of my mothers and my grandmothers said, like, you are the centre of that. And to me that's the thing about, like, our specific Tongan system in the way that we live it, the ordering of siblings, the role of fahu, mekdanga. Like, to me, I just live that one truth, and then it lets everything else kind of find its space. But it's definitely something that kind of that you got to surf through. You know, you got to s- swim and surf. Try not to drown. Sometimes tread water. You know, but generally trying not to drown. You know.
0: Oh, alright. I don't want to follow that. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Malo akuito, malo mahuilo I really appreciate your generosity and sharing.
2: Clu e Clu e Clu e sua mãe mate fa capo, sua mãe, sua mãe. Fakapa Suamai Suamai Chuu O tu la tu E pe itonga muakai Toke la uia ia O tu la tu E pe itonga muakai Toke la uia ia